The fact that Nietzsche can now be read as a hyper-political thinker capable of seeing politics where it had never before been seen offers a certain warning to the left, but also a certain necessity to follow uh, the path that Nietzsche opens. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good afternoon from New York City. My name is Harrison Fluss, and I am chairing today's book launch for Dominica Lacerdo's Nietzsche, The Aristocratic Rebel. Lacerdo tragically died in 2018 and unfortunately cannot be with us today as we discuss and celebrate the release of his book. He left behind a substantial intellectual legacy and was a pioneering Marxist scholar in the history of philosophy. The Aristocratic Rebel is arguably his most important work. It is also the most important Marxist work written on Nietzsche, superseding George Lukács' earlier critique from the destruction of reason. The supersession has a dialectical character. Lacerdo deepens Lukács' critique of Nietzsche, eliminates its contingent aspects, and radically expands its scope. Lacerdo's account goes beyond mere biography. It is a work of philosophy, politics, history, and a true encyclopedia of the 19th century. If you haven't already, I ask that you obtain a copy of this book and take the time to digest its contents. Even if you are a Nietzschean or are sympathetic to certain Nietzschean concepts, you owe it to yourself to read The Aristocratic Rebel. It is the most comprehensive engagement and critique of Nietzsche that you will find from a socialist perspective. My relationship with this book started when I was a student of continental philosophy. As I was developing my own perspective, Ishe Landa's essay from the New Left Review, Nietzsche, the Chinese worker's friend, was particularly game-changing for me. It was my first step towards an entire realm of critical Marxist scholarship about Nietzsche, and Lacerdo's book is the most important example of this critical scholarship. However, the aristocratic rebel should not mean the end of it, but a new beginning for theory in the Anglophone world. Beyond liberal and postmodern readings, Lacerdo's book shows that the future of Nietzsche's scholarship belongs to Marxism. For this event, we have three speakers that I'm very excited to introduce to you. Our first speaker is Benjamin Noyes, professor of critical theory at the University of Chester. Ben is the author of The Persistence of the Negative, Malign Velocities, and the forthcoming The Matter of Language. The title of his paper is Nietzsche's Revenge, which will discuss the theme of resentment. Our second speaker is Tiana Okic, Tiana holds a PhD in philosophy from the Scuola Normale Superiore di Pisa and is a long-standing activist for the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt. She is the editor of The Lost Revolution, 
Yugoslav Women's Anti-Fascist Front Between Myth and Forgetting, and her research includes issues of German idealism, contemporary French philosophy, feminism, Marxism, the history of race and ethnicity, and the problems of memory in Yugoslav history. Tiana's paper is entitled Lucerto's Nietzsche, Totus Politicus. Our third speaker is Daniel Tutt. Daniel has degrees from American University and the European Graduate School. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Initiation Crisis, Lacanian Psychoanalysis and the Politics of the Family with the Palgrave Lacan series. His research is concerned with the intersection of contemporary politics, Marxism, and Lacanian psychoanalysis. You can read Daniel's review of Lacerdo's aristocratic rebel entitled Nietzsche in his time, the struggle against Socratism and socialism on the historical materialism website. Daniel's paper is titled Nietzsche's political praxis and the birth of perspectivism. So our first speaker will be Ben and I will hand it over to him. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Harrison. Uh, thank you, Harrison. And thanks to the other speakers and to everyone here. It's like the alienated world at the digital. Uh, today, I want to talk about resentment or resentment. The resentful hatred of the weak for the strong that Nietzsche so eloquently and violently described in On the Genealogy of Morals. I just want to first say that, for me, writing on Nietzsche in a critical way, especially after Lucido's book, is something of a self-criticism. Uh, a self-criticism that could apply to at least 15 years of my own work. And I say that just to make the point that the process of reading Lucido's book uh, is not an easy one in the sense of also taking stock of one's own critical position and one's own relationship to Nietzsche and to Nietzschean thought. Nietzsche was the first philosopher I read. It's just a biographical point. So doing uh, this kind of reading is something of the task that Gramsci spoke of as compiling an inventory of our consciousness of the infinity of traces that compose uh, our understanding and experience. So what I want to do then is uh, to think about resentiment and to consider the kind of future and fate of this concept, which is at once so attractive and I want to suggest uh, so problematic. Deleuze remarks that genealogy is the art of difference or distinction, the art of nobility, but it sees itself backwards in the mirror of reactive forces. The genealogy of morals is a book of the triumph of resentiment, but also the book that claims to overcome resentiment through the art of difference as the art of the nobility. We should also add that this theme of the resentful hatred of the weak for the strong is recurrent in Nietzsche's writings. In The Birth of Tragedy, we find a very clear statement of the problem of revenge from below. Quote, there is nothing more fearful than a barbaric slave class which has learned to regard its existence as an injustice and is preparing to take revenge, not just for itself, but for all generations. Later, in Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche writes of the tarantulas, creatures of equality, who are dealers in hidden revengefulness. Finally, in Ecce Homo, Nietzsche will reiterate that resentment born of weakness harms no one more than the weak person. So there is a constant and insistent presence of the analysis of revenge and resentment both before and after the genealogy. 
To begin classically with a definition, resentiment, as Sarah Kaufman summarizes, is the fact that, quote, weak wills can impose their meanings only by reaction, by inverting, disfiguring, and displacing the meaning attributed by the strong. In Nietzsche's own words, resentiment is a compensation in an imaginary revenge due to an inability to act independently. It is an act of resentment, the victory of the weak over the strong. While reactive, it still remains for Nietzsche an expression of the will to power. And it is the origin of the triumph of the reactive values of Christianity and their present mutation into the forms of socialism and anarchism, and Nietzsche was writing, but still today. Nietzsche was remarkably successful in coining this concept, and it remains influential and dominant. And this includes amongst its targets, the left. Nietzsche, always with an eye on the future and the question of his posthumous fate, has had his revenge on us through his own concept of revenge and resentiment. While formulated as an anti-revolutionary trope in the name of dismissing revolution as mere revenge, we find today that accusations of resentiment float across political positions. Certainly, we have a continuity of reactionary uses of resentiment, but in the violent debates around identity politics, decolonization, anti-racist struggles, and perhaps especially in the online milieu, we often see resentiment used as an explanation and criticism from the left. Jeff Waite has pointed out that the left was often, quote, unwittingly programmed and manipulated by Nietzsche's thought. And I want to suggest that one of the vectors of this manipulation is an acceptance of resentiment. This has a particular interest in a context like this, as the notion of resentiment not only falls on the masses, but also on the role of the intellectual. So I think one uh, important question here is this relationship between in the masses and the intellectual that I want to draw out. So what I want to do here is firstly explore Nietzsche, um, sorry, explore Domenico Lucerdo's remarks on resentiment, which are kind of scattered in the book, but make a kind of thesis and an argument. Then I want to turn uh, to the question of whether we should use this concept and how, before finally turning to the issue of whether we can reformulate the concept of resentiment. And this is something that Frederick Jameson has attempted, uh, what he calls authentic resentiment, a primal class passion, driven, quote, by the fear of modern people that they have not really lived, not yet lived or fulfilled their lives in a world organized to deprive them of that satisfaction. In this case, we would shift resentiment away from its anti-revolutionary roots in Nietzsche. Resentiment would not be the resentment of the masses for their masters, but the resentment of the deprivations inflicted by class society. I want to also raise actually some kind of critical questions around this and whether this can actually be done. Uh, I think what I'm focusing on here is resentiment focuses the question of the influence of Nietzsche, how we might read Nietzsche and how we might respond to him today. So I think that's why I've chosen it as a concept to look at. First then, what does Lusudo say? Lusudo notes how Nietzsche focuses the accusation of resentiment both on the masses who desire revenge on their masters and on the intellectuals who stir them to action. Resentment is an effect or mood both of the masses and of its organic intellectuals, to use Gramsci's phrase. The intellectual is an arouser and channeler of resentment. That is why, as Lucido points out, Nietzsche can give a positive role to the ascetic priest in controlling and redirecting resentment. So if you remember in On the Genealogy of Morals, Nietzsche has a whole section discussing the ascetic priest, uh, and this is widely taken as a kind of critique, a demolition of Christianity. 
But in fact, for Nietzsche, Christian, Christian preaching of charity and sympathy, insofar as it directs the masses away from revolt and into passive acceptance, is a good thing. So this is important to remember. The Christian priest functions, if we like, as part of the ideological state apparatus, as Althusser would have said. And Nietzsche is happy to support that. So his work is not simply the violent rejection of Christian morality that we're kind of familiar with, especially uh, in its left interpretation, but also the acceptance of Christianity in its pacifying role for the masses. In contrast, the plebeian intellectual is, as Lacerdo quotes Nietzsche, a person of rancor who stirs up the masses, asking them to seek in the ruling classes the cause of his or her being miserable. Lacerdo notes Nietzsche's description of plebeian intellectuals as educated swine. And we could, of course, draw the parallel with Edmund Burke's famous description of the masses as a swinish multitude. So there is a parallel here between the intellectual and the masses. It is Rousseau who is the archetypal figure of such an intellectual for Nietzsche. The insistence of Rousseau on equality, on the role or right of happiness for the masses, on the problem of pity and our relationship to others, is an example of a figure who will become a regular in the demonology of the reactionary right, the revolutionary intellectual as figure of resentment. Lucerdo also notes the continuity between Nietzsche's denouncing of the envy of the masses as an expression of their own unhappiness and the work of thinkers like Hayek and Mies, who regard any resentment against capitalism as the expression of personal failure. So we're not only talking about arch-reactionary intellectuals, but we're also talking about neoliberal ideologists who also read uh, the masses as resentful, but due to their own personal failings. In Nietzsche's thinking, the rancor of the masses must be channeled into self-punishment while the rancor of the intellectuals must be denounced as a hidden expression of the will to power. Now, Lucido's argument is not only critical. He also argues that Nietzsche's notion of resentiment does capture, quote, a real problem of the dialectic of revolution, which is the emergence of demand for absolute egalitarianism, asceticism, and radical leveling. Yet, as Lucido notes, this is not to accept Nietzsche's counter-revolutionary point that all revolutions are led by envy and result in a destructive and violent levelling. Instead, for Lucido, the point is that resentiment is a potential element of revolution that must be dispersed through alliances. And in fact, resentiment is a weapon of division wielded by the dominant classes. So resentiment is a way to divide us. If we resent each other, we are no longer resenting uh, them. So Nietzsche's radical criticism of revolution could have a therapeutic value in helping us to consider how to overcome division and forge class solidarity that would not be contained by envy and hatred. So here we can see the attraction and challenge of resentiment as a mode of analysis and diagnosis. It is difficult to shake the sense that Nietzsche was onto something, while at the same time, uh, trying to articulate a rejection of the reactionary politics that Rizontimon fuels. To pursue this problem further, I want to turn to Frederick Jameson, who in The Political Unconscious from 1981, had already sketched in some ways some of the points made by Lacerda. According to Jameson, while Rizontimon might appear to be a psychological mechanism, quote, it has a more fundamentally political function, which is to explain the phenomenon of revolution. 
In fact, what we could add is that Nietzsche translates the political into the psychological in a very persuasive way, which accounts for the persistence of this anti-revolutionary trope as a psychological analysis. Deleuze, most famously inspired by Jung, will present the analysis of Rizontimon as a mode of psychological or psychoanalytic typology. You see his famous book on Nietzsche as a whole chapter on this. Nietzsche's success has been in disguising political concepts as psychological and rendering politics as a matter of psychology, even if, as here, the psychological is expanded as an expression of the will to power. Jameson, similarly to Lucerdo, identifies the analysis of Rizontimont as a problem not only of the masses, but also of intellectuals. Once again, it is intellectuals who are seen as the provokers of envy, when their ideological role for Nietzsche should be pacifying resentment. These intellectuals are the, quote, unsuccessful writers and poets, bad philosophers, bilious journalists, and failures of all kinds, as Jameson puts it in one of those sentences one cannot help but identify with in one or more uh, ways. Again, these compose the demonology of anti-revolutionaries. These are the kind of figures of hatred that we see still persistent uh, and present today. The notion that there might be any real basis for resentment is dissolved into envy as a result of private failure. As Jameson goes on to point out, a notable feature of the theory of Rizontimon is its unavoidably autoreferential structure. What is represented is the expression of resentment, and so the theory of Rizontimon, as he puts it, wherever it appears, will always itself be the expression and production of Rizontimon. It is the expression of annoyance of those who rock the boat of class society, we could say. In the case of Nietzsche, this makes us rightly suspicious of all the claims to an independent affirmation, an active force, and a separation from all contact with the reactive. This is a kind of constant trope in Nietzsche, this um, proclaiming of independence while constantly also proclaiming resentment. If resentment is the act of the weak, then Nietzsche too seems tainted by such weakness, and his attempts to extract an affirmative concept of revenge attests to this difficulty. One other thread I don't have time to discuss is this sort of other concept of revenge that happens in Nietzsche, his attempts to have a kind of noble revenge, um, which is not particularly uh, convincing. And yet, while this is a neat point, this sort of contradictory structure of um, Rizontimont, it doesn't stop Rizontimont working. The advice often given to training therapists is that simply pointing out contradictions in the client's behavior or in the client's words is usually inadvisable and ineffective. We can wonder similarly if simply pointing out that the charge of resentiment is self-contradictory is sufficient to dispose of this concept. Certainly, we can complicate the charge of resentiment. Jameson does this by pointing out that not only do we have the Nietzschean resentiment of the masses for their rulers, but also the envy of intellectuals left adrift for the class solidarity of the working class. So this is kind of flipping Rizontimon on its head. This is what we might call Rizontimon in reverse. Instead of envy striking at the wealthy or the ruling class, in this instance, we have an envy and resentment of the life of the working class. In a complex reactionary form, such a dynamic is obviously evident in the work of D.H. Lawrence, for example. We also have the case of George Orwell, with his writing a mix of envy, identification and disgust with the proles. See 1984, but throughout his work. Such an envy for solidarity can also be expressed in more revolutionary forms, such as Engels' own journey to the working class of Manchester. 
We are, however, used to the critical point that a reversal does not overturn a concept. So once again, resentiment seems difficult to shake. Simply flipping it may not be enough. Beyond this reversal, Jameson also speculates on the possibility of an authentic resentiment. This would be a resentiment generalized to such an extent that it becomes, quote, the guarantor of a divisiveness beyond ideological commitment. That is to say, this is now a resentiment that is not only the reactionary resentiment of the have-nots for the haves, or the resentiment of the haves, or some of them for the solidarity of the have-nots. Instead, it's a resentment directed at class society itself. So this is kind of Jameson's trump card. You know, we could go beyond the Nietzschean uh, dynamic. This is resentment as revolutionary antagonism, in which the alliances Lucido spoke of are now sought on the basis of an overturning of class society. As Jameson says, this form of class consciousness is one in, which is intolerable for the bourgeois reader to dwell. I'm uh, sorry, it is one in, in which it is intolerable for the bourgeois reader to dwell for any length of time. It is a resentment beyond typology and psychology, in the form Nietzsche gives it. It is a resentment beyond difference. If we remain with difference as the art of the nobility that Nietzsche that Deleuze described, this intolerable resentiment may at least indicate the point of rupture with the concept. The difficulty here, however, is that this intolerable vision of class struggle recedes, as things so often do with Jameson, into the sublime and unrepresentable. Authentic resentiment appears as a mere promise rather than an actuality. So what we can see here are some of the difficulties the theory of resentiment causes. So I've tried to kind of work them through, and I don't say I have all the answers to it, but I've been trying to kind of move through these difficulties. Nietzsche's revenge is to have installed a persuasive theory of revenge into our thinking of revolution. And we could add in psychology precisely as a psychologization of the political. Nietzsche has created a persuasive trope connecting revolution, psychological failure, the weakness of the masses, and the rancor of the intellectual. We have traced briefly responses that try to break these chains that operate in the concept of resentiment. Domenico Lucerdo confirms that resentiment is an anti-revolutionary concept of a piece with Nietzsche's politicization of thought. Lucerdo also grants that resentiment indicates the problem in the revolutionary process in which hatred and violence can take an extreme form. And his solution is the need for alliances to detoxify the divisions and resentment generated by class society. For Jameson, we can not only criticize resentiment as contradictory, the expression of a violent hatred for revolution that is itself an act of resentment, but also see a true resentiment that might be developed on the basis of such alliances. The resentiment appears as a strange fading vision, intolerable to the bourgeois reader, of the possibility of overturning class society as a whole. While a possibility, it also appears to be a vanishing horizon. What I think is also important to take on board, again, is that resentiment is a matter of the masses and intellectuals. Resentiment is what binds the intellectuals and the masses negatively for Nietzsche, in which the potential revolutionary alliance of intellectuals and the masses is a matter for phobic anxiety. And this suggests to me that overcoming resentiment is also a matter of overcoming the division between the masses and the intellectual, between uh, division between manual and intellectual labor, if you like, to use a kind of traditional uh, formulation at the heart of communist thinking and Marxist thinking. To conclude, then, while Jameson tends to see resentiment as an ideology of the past, I think it continues to have a remarkable success. In a context marked by radical precarity, 
by successful and dominant capitalism, any expression of dissent is rapidly labelled as risentiment. The fear of competition for status, and so to access to self-reproduction in capitalist society, generates forms of envy and resentment that are often transcoded into forms of risentiment. This includes on the left as well. In fact, perhaps as a target of such accusations, we are all the more keen to kind of throw them around in almost a kind of way to avoid them. The work of division that Lacerdo notes in the notion of risentiment continues to do its work. And I think the counter to this lies in the suggestion of class solidarity and alliances that Jameson and Lacerdo indicate. It also lies in grasping what we might be inclined to read as a psychological category, as a category fought politically as a weapon against the socialist, anarchist, feminist, abolitionist, and other radical movements. It is these gestures, which I suggest as starting points, that may allow us to understand that the real ressentiment is that of the envy of the ruling class, working class solidarity and care, while the authentic ressentiment Jameson speaks of is the ability to develop this solidarity as a class consciousness and alliance with intellectuals and others. And in this way, I think and hope that we might turn Nietzsche's revenge against Nietzsche. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. So next up is Tiana. So I will hand it off to her. Okay, uh, thank you, Harrison, and thank you, uh, everyone, uh, uh, for being here. My presentation, as Harrison already mentioned, is entitled uh, Nietzsche, uh, Philosopher Totus Politicus, namely, that is the um, uh, one of the definitions of Domenico Losurdo. He defines Nietzsche as totus politicus. When Losurdo uses this expression, uh, um, obviously one wonders uh, 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 why does he come to define Nietzsche as totus politicus, given that um, the last, in particular, I would say the period after the Second World War, even though the great merit of Lusurda's book is to have shown that the, um, in order to uh, look for the origins of these, uh, what he calls innocent interpretations of uh, um, Nietzsche, uh, we ought to go back to the 19th century and to start there. However, uh, what I would like to do is to start much later, and in other words, after uh, with the readings that come after the Second World War. Mostly, we are all familiar uh, with the readings of Karl uh, um, uh, Jaspers, of Hannah Arendt, Leo Strauss, Walter Kaufmann, in Italy, Mazzino Montinari, uh, Giorgio Colli, um, Gianni Vattimo, um, in France, uh, Georges Bataille, for example, not to mention some others like Lefebvre, Gilles Deleuze, Michel Foucault, etc. And these are, in a way, all readings which he considers to uh, be part of what he calls the hermeneutics of the innocence. In other words, these are the readings, and this is obviously really the greatest merit of Lesourde's book, uh, uh, the readings that, in a way, uh, try to present Nietzsche as anti-political, apolitical uh, um, uh, thinker, which has nothing to do with the politics. In other words, Lesourde almost says that they make Nietzsche, they turn Nietzsche into an idiot of some kind, precisely because they want to hide uh, the real sort of uh, uh, impetus of his thought, which is completely political. And this is why he calls Nietzsche totus politicus. Um, against this sort of image of the hermeneutics of the innocence, which we have to obviously see in its own context, and it is the context after the Second World War, it is the context of the um, um, 
uh, Cold War, and it is the concept of um, um, uh, the problem of the generally history of philosophy and historiography, on the other hand, within the Cold War era. So Lesurda, in another text, which uh, is published, I think, in 2003 in Belfagor, which is a famous Italian journal of intellectual history, um, Lesurda actually talks about uh, um, talks about these readings, and he says uh, we should make an intellectual experiment. And this intellectual experiment would consist in imagining one student of philosophy uh, being taught Nietzsche. If he went to philosophy department, he would have Walter Kaufmann, Bataille, Deleuze, everyone, all the representatives of the hermeneutics of the innocence. Uh, if he went to a history department, and uh, uh, this part is entitled The Conflict of Faculties, so he's playing obviously with, 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 with Kantian terminology. So if the same student who wants to study Nietzsche goes to the Department of Philosophy, um, from thinkers, that is from historians as diverse as Ernst Nolte, the champion of German historical revisionism, uh, to Eric Hobsbawm, uh, he would learn that Nietzsche is to be sort of put into his historical context, which is the um, uh, reactionary anti-democratic thought of the 19th century. And this is enough, sort of, uh, Lusurda says, to sort of get a, a glimpse as to uh, why reading Nietzsche can be so sort of uh, sometimes misleading and difficult because simply philosophers say one thing, uh, professional historians would say another thing, putting Nietzsche into his own context. Uh, this is one thing. Another thing is uh, obviously the um, uh, European, as it were, debate on Nietzsche in uh, United States, Walter Kaufmann, but particularly in Italy, for example, because as we know, the uh, editors of the collected works of Friedrich Nietzsche uh, in German are two Italians, uh, Mazzino Montinari and Giorgio Colli. Um, the other uh, uh, important, obviously, interpreter, uh, one of the representatives of the uh, so-called pensiero debole, the weak thought, is Gianni Vattimo. And then we have Massimo Cacciari and other uh, other uh, Italian philosophers. So besides sort of the international debate, the Italians have had possibly one of the most uh, uh, interesting debates on Nietzsche uh, uh, at all. Uh, now, what's interesting is uh, uh, Montinari in 1975 writes this book, which is entitled What Did Nietzsche Say? Cosa ha detto Nietzsche? And in 1982, um, Mazzino Montinari publishes a book in German called Nietzsche Lesen, to read Nietzsche or reading Nietzsche. And in this sense, um, one should be reminded that Montinari was a um, intellectual who always remained close to the Italian PGI. Um, and this is something that one of the um, uh, pupils of Domenico Lossurdo, Stefano Azzara, reminds us of in his uh, preface uh, or the introduction to the Italian edition of Jan, Jan Riemann's uh, Nietzscheans of the Left. Um, so, uh, Mazzino Montinari writes this uh, uh, book, uh, Nietzsche Lesen, published by De Greuter in 1982. Now, uh, this book, I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't be so interesting if it wasn't um, the... Um, um, if it wasn't speaking, some, if, if, if it wasn't telling us something about the spirit of its own time. Namely, by 1982, um, we are deeply sort of entrenched in um, uh, um, prevalence, if not altogether victory of historical revisionism. We know that from the 70s, I mean, even before, from 1960s, you have first text of Ernst Nolte. In France, you have François Furet. In Italy, you already have a sort of a rehabilitation of Mussolini and so on and so forth. So he writes this text uh, uh, in this book. Uh, uh, one of the chapters is dedicated to two interpretations of 
um, Nietzsche, namely that of Alfred Boimler, and the other one is that of uh, George Lukács. Now, uh, what he tries to do, and this is particularly interesting, as I said, because it tells us something about the time and the spirit of the time, he and Batimo is guilty of the same thing, and Losurdo uh, shows this in his uh, uh, biography in, in, in the book, um, and a lot of the um, sort of Cold War interpretations um, Kachari is guilty of the same thing. So many of these interpretations have, in effect, tried to um, um, equalize, in a way, uh, Boimler and Nietzsche, given that the prevalent theory at the time was the theory of two totalitarianisms. And hence, on the one hand, you have a Nazi, one of the main exponents of the Nazi uh, uh, philosophy, and hence ideology, and anyone who merely flicked through uh, Viktor Klemperer knows how important sort of the uh, ideological uh, uh, preparation was for the uh, Nazi propaganda. And on the other hand, they put uh, Judge Lukács, uh, obviously the destruction of reason, and um, the idea is to say that these two books um, are almost the same, except that they differ in value judgment. So one comes from the... Um, uh, from the right, one comes from the left, and hence the circle is closed. Two totalitarianisms are equal. Communism equals Nazism. Lukács equals Boimler. And this is where uh, uh, the interpretation, as it were, ends. And then we get the um, uh, Nietzsche, who we cannot even read. And I think there is somewhere in the book where Lasurda says, you know, already Franz Mehring uh, dispels with, 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 with certain readings when, you know, uh, people claimed that Nietzsche cannot be read, uh, he can't be understood in any logical way, uh, he escapes every concept, uh, Nietzsche is the Aufklärer and Gegen Aufklärer, Nietzsche is the, um, uh, uh, the biggest thinker of the 19th century and at the same time the worst, as it were, in a way, uh, uh, thinker of the 19th century Nietzsche is the thinker of the ressentiment. Nietzsche is the thinker who helps us to overcome the ressentiment. Nietzsche is the thinker, and so on and so forth. So all of these different uh, counterposings of different, as it were, Nietzsche. Now, Losurdo, in one of the interviews, uh, uh, which I think can be found on YouTube, says that his book on Nietzsche should be read together with his book, Liberalism, A Counter-History. And uh, thinking these two, or trying to think these two books together, they indeed uh, depart from the same question. So on the one hand, when talking about liberalism and some of its main representatives, what Nietzsche, uh, what Losurdo is trying to do, he's saying, well, how can we, and in which ways can we think of these thinkers as liberal? They're professing liberty on the one hand, whereas on the other hand, they are deeply engaged in um, um, uh, racist thought, like Locke, they own the uh, the shares of the companies which trade slaves and so on and so forth. And the same thing, and that is the same question, is applied uh, to Nietzsche. In other words, how can one thinker be, you know, uh, tell me what you need and I'll find you Nietzsche quotation. So how can he be of the farthest left and of the total right? And this is in a way what uh, uh, Losurdo's meaning of totus politicus is also. Um, in 1999, and this is also part of the Italian context, and uh, you know, we should also mention that sort of a, a smaller, rather small version of this, uh, uh, Nietzsche il ribelle aristocratico, appeared in 97 for Manifesto Libri. Uh, uh, I think it's only 80 pa 85 pages long, and it was called uh, Per una biograf uh, biografia politica, so Nietzsche per una biografia politica. So this is also the context um, which, uh, in a way, 
saw the end of communism on the one hand, the 1989, the 1990s. Uh, by, the, um, uh, 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 by the time uh, Losurdo published this, as it were, first version, a couple of years later, that is two years later, uh, we're going to see the first, as it were, NATO intervention in former Yugoslavia. Uh, Losurdo, uh, along with Costanzo Preve uh, and Luciano Camfora and other Italian intellectuals, has actually been one of the signatories of a letter against the NATO intervention in former Yugoslavia uh, in 1999. Gianni Vattimo, in 1999, in Italian La Stampa, uh, replies to this letter signed by uh, various Italian intellectuals and accuses them, as it were, of supporting Milosevic, accuses them and asks them, have you ever not heard from Bosnia, by the way, hello from Bosnia, have you not heard from Bosnia, about Bosnia, about the ethnic cleansing, about the um, uh, mass rapes that happened there, and so on and so forth. And Domenico Losurdo wrote, uh, um, uh, to an extent this was a political debate, but Nietzsche was very much involved in it, as it were, which is why I'm sort of uh, bringing this, because it's also part of the overall context that later on brought Losurdo basically to uh, to write this massive, massive biography. And uh, Losurdo uh, uh, famously uh, replied to this, and he said, uh, uh, um, you know, um, that the um, pathos, as it were, I mean, let me just, uh, um, replied and concluded, concluded thus, I quote, Vatimo deserved his uh, international fame as the interpreter of Nietzsche and Heidegger. Pity he now seems to have lost out of sight an essential aspect of their teaching. Moral pathos can lead to the worst exterminating crusades. Um, wow, time passes by. Uh, so uh, let me conclude uh, two interpretations which uh, uh, are quite similar, which Montinari wanted to put at the same level. One is the um, uh, Alfred Boimler, the other one is by Lukács. Uh, Lukács' thesis, and I think Lasurda sort of shows this really well, uh, if there is one sort of uh, 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 default with Lukács' book, it is that it's too Germanophobic in a way. And Losurdo literally says in the book, uh, Lukács failed to notice how much of German, uh, how much of the French and English uh, Nietzsche had contained in his thought. Uh, Alfred Boimler, who Walter Kaufmann, by the way, called the nobody and tried to uh, dismiss him altogether, was one of the um, you know biggest popular popularizers, as it were, of Nietzsche's philosophy. He wrote all the uh, um, introductions to the uh, uh, Taschenbuch editions in 1930s of Nietzsche's work. And the most important thing, the book is divided in two parts. It's called Nietzsche, Politiker und Philosopher. So Nietzsche, the, polit uh, the politician and the philosopher. The philosopher, he's obviously seen as someone who's a destroyer of idealism, in other words, Hegel, uh, Nietzsche as, the, as, 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 as a politician is indeed seen, and he says this quite literally in a Schmittian way, Boimler says, Nietzsche's most intimate enemy is Rousseau. And uh, if we talk about uh, uh, the way Nietzsche, for example, in, in some of his works describes Rousseau, he, he, he literally talks about Rousseau as a tarantula. He literally says Rousseau is a, uh, 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 is a tarantula and uh, a tarantula is a sort of um, an animal that can become this and that. Uh, he, um, uh, uh, Rousseau, Rousseau is the, um, the thinker of the uh, originary equality, and this is the problem. So um, in the name of uh, uh, equality of nature, Rousseau criticizes social inequality, whereas Nietzsche, and this is what Boimler takes Nietzsche to represent, which is fully in line with the Nazi ideology, Nietzsche sees people as unequal by nature, 
and hence, as Rousseau sees the civil society as a corruption, as it were, you know, we are all born equal, but the society makes us unequal. For Nietzsche, we are all born unequal, but the society makes us equal. And this was the impetus, basically, for Boimler's book. On the other hand, uh, Lukács, as we all know, tried to uh, uh, put Nietzsche into perhaps overtly German context, but nonetheless within a thought um, um, which represented in a way the crisis of the modern concept of mediation. So in a way, this is something that uh, uh, brings closer both Losurdo and Lukács, in other words, um, their understanding of the deeply anti-Hegelian elements in Nietzsche's thought that is a reaction to Hegel. You know, we can talk about Allah Hobsbawm, you know, the dual revolution, the first international, the second international, the defeat of the Paris Commune and everything that Lusurda writes about. But this is the second point uh, uh, which is important. And what is the point of this for Lukács? For Lukács, the irrationalism where he situates Nietzsche is a thought which um, utterly subjectivizes the historical experience. And this needs to subjectivize the historical experience comes precisely from the destruction of the modern concept of mediation, that is of the modern concept of reason, of enlightenment, of progress. And Nietzsche himself indeed says that the 18th century against which he fights with instinct, with power and transvaluation is the century of Rousseau. Thank you so much, Tiana. Okay, we will hand it over now to Daniel as our third speaker. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Harrison, for uh, the invitation to be a part of this event. Thank you also for introducing me to Los Cerdo. Um, this book has been a kind of uh, lightning bolt for me personally. Um, I'd also like to thank my uh, fellow co-panelists, Tiana and Benjamin, for the papers that they've delivered and for their insights. So this afternoon, I'd like to address uh, the aristocratic rebel in two ways. Uh, the first will revolve around Losurdo's method. Um, this is a method that gives us readers of Nietzsche a wider context to Nietzsche's thoughts, uh, to his theory, to his concepts. Uh, but more importantly, uh, Losurdo's method really reveals what I consider the evolution of central Nietzschean concepts. Eternal return, perspectivism, will to power, just to name a few. Uh, this is a method that combines philological, philosophical, and historical analysis. Uh, in short, it fundamentally changes our understanding and our application of Nietzsche's concepts. The main argument of Losurdo is that to truly get at the core of Nietzschean thought, it requires that we privilege the theme of revolution as the center, uh, put it at the very center, and that revolution and counter-revolution, a reaction to revolution, namely the French Revolution, um, necessitated the development of a series of strategies that were bent on furthering, um, uh, uh, putting on the brakes to, to, this, to these impulses across Europe uh, primarily. Um, therefore, uh, in Losurdo's presentation, Nietzsche can be thought of as a dialectical thinker in continuous reaction to the revolutionary tradition. The revolutionary tradition found expression in the worker uprisings of 1848, in massification, uh, especially the problem of universal male suffrage in education, uh, the broadening of inclusion of educational institutions, women's rights, and the problem of the ending of slavery. 
Therefore, Nietzsche should be read as an activist, as a thinker continuously refining both a metaphysics, um, a morality, and a series of concepts in response to political struggles. Now, now Lucero argues the unity of Nietzsche's thought revolves more around history, genealogy, and morality uh, than it does revolve around language, art, and aesthetics, which is, as you all know, the predominant uh, philosophical view on Nietzsche that we have been trained in, both from the French Nietzscheans to the Anglo-American readers of Nietzsche um, uh, and beyond, which Tiana, I think, addressed very well. It is important that we take this Lucerto shift in emphasis seriously because it gives us a new rationale of Nietzscheanism. Um, and we benefit from reading the guiding thread of his thought as a reaction to the, to the advancement of modern political equality, as a reaction to democracy and to socialism, because this reading does not ignore the importance of art and aesthetics, but rather situates them in a different and important light. Um, when it comes to those philosophers that do extract political insight from Nietzsche, Lucerto's argument goes against many of the predominant readings, from Brian Leder, who claims there is no political philosophy in Nietzsche, to Hugo Drokon, who argues that Nietzsche's grand politics possesses a trans-historical relevance for any sort of politics, to, to the French Nietzscheans such as Deleuze and Badiou, who turn to Nietzsche to fashion an ethics and a theory of subjectivity that is vaguely in line with a leftist political project, in the case of Badiou, in line with a communist project. Therefore, Lucerto's reconstruction of Nietzsche should not be understood as a historicist effort that merely shows the extent of Nietzsche's reactionary political commitments to virtue signal him and then, by extension, guilt us readers of Nietzsche. On the contrary, I think that Lucerto's reconstruction demonstrates how Nietzschean thought contains a theoretical surplus uh, of this reactionary agenda that is not merely an appendage to Nietzschean philosophy, but part and parcel of it. Lucerto asks us whether the revolutionary and emancipatory agendas that we possess on the left are even compatible with Nietzscheanism, and in what ways Nietzschean ideas compromise those commitments. In the second part of my paper, I want to offer an argument on how Nietzschean thought does indeed pervert these core commitments to the radical left. But to begin, I want to start off with a conversation on the Nietzschean concept of perspectivism. Perhaps no other concept illustrates better the ambiguous basis of Nietzsche's contribution to the left than does perspectivism. It is a very well-tracked and very well-developed concept in aristocratic rebel, even more so than its treatment of the eternal return or the will to power. Lucerto's analysis of perspectivism is exceptional. It is the best example of how his method of historical, philological, and philosophical analysis can situate a philosophical concept. Um, now, given that perspectivism refers to the notion that truth claims are fundamentally bound up with one's own perspective, it is hard not to decontextualize the discovery of this idea, i.e., it is hard not to relegate perspectivism to a mere epistemological theory. And we see this often. Perspectivism continues to be celebrated by thinkers who identify it as a precursor to postmodernism, such as Lyotard or Richard Woolen. And as Jeff Waite says, postmodernism might as well be called Nietzscheanism. Perspectivism is at the heart of this turn, and it informs much of contemporary theory. 
including the neo-pragmatism of Richard Rorty and other liberal anti-foundational philosophies, such as Emerson's. Perspectivism helps us understand the wider appeal of Nietzsche for some thinkers on the left as well, because it implies that a theory of the subject that is capable of eluding representation and circumventing epistemological conventions is indeed uh, what we must be after. For example, in French Nietzscheanism, we frequently find the idea that Nietzsche's philosophy provides a certain ethics of subjectivity, precisely an ethics of self-destruction, of self-overcoming, an ethics that is brought in line with a wider theory of aesthetics and artistic becoming and sublimation. Therefore, at the heart of perspectivism is a rejection of the Enlightenment subject as an agent eligible for universal rights. This form of subjectivity stems from the post-French revolutionary definition of the human being as one of universal inclusion on a representational basis. Nietzschean perspectivism, and by extension his ethics, seeks to enact an annihilation of this form of subjectivity. Quote, the task is not who is man, but who overcomes man, as Nietzsche says in Zarathustra. The overman has nothing in common at the level of perspective with the species being of the dialecticians, as Jill Deleuze writes in his study on Nietzsche. For Deleuze, Nietzsche's perspectivism is a break that sidesteps Christianity, socialism, humanism, egoism, nihilism, and all theories of history that are reliant on the dialectic itself. Perspectivism is thus at the very heart of Deleuze's theory of the subject, a theory which is founded in a split and a rupture, similar to the theory of schizoanalysis that he and Felix Cotari develop, which is very much indebted to perspectivism. Perspectivism is attractive to Deleuze because it opens the way for a new thinking of feeling, of evaluating, and ultimately of legislating values. In Logic of Sense, Deleuze takes up this idea of the destructive Nietzschean subject towards very creative ends, proposing an ethics of living up to one's wound. This is similar in a way to Alain Badiou's reading of Nietzsche's radical gesture of erasing one's proper name in a grand anti-philosophical act. In both instances, Nietzsche is a thinker who provides a set of philosophical insights, not for recentering the subject via the affect of rec recognition, but is brought into conversation as a philosopher capable of helping us think a radical decentering of the subject. In other words, Nietzsche provides the tools for thinking the subject as radically singular, split apart, and set adrift from representation entirely. Now, what Lucerto's comments in, uh, on perspectivism uh, provide is a proper context for understanding why the themes of annihilation, splitting, and destruction are so central for Nietzsche. As a doctrine, perspectivism is not merely a theory of the centrality of interpretation over objective reality or truth. It is also part of a political praxis that is bent on nominalizing, i.e. making fictional, the human subject, and by extension, annihilating its basis in universality. I want to get at the heart of why this emphasis on total subjective annihilation is so important for Nietzsche, and why this is also at the heart of understanding Nietzsche's ethical praxis. To properly grasp Nietzschean perspectivism, Lucerto invites us to situate it not merely as an epistemological debate that is responding to neo-Kantian theories of cognition, as the vast majority of commentators have insisted. Perspectivism is rather best read as a concept founded as a solution to wider debate 
between realist and nominalist proposals of political truth and political thought that were occurring in a post-French Revolutionary context in Europe. Um, these questions related to questions of historiography, questions of nihilism, and they were deeply in conversation with the budding tradition of historicism as Nietzsche encountered in de Tocqueville and in Taine, amongst many other historians that he read. Um, now, Taine and Tocqueville, both liberal philosophers, um, maintained a position of nominalism in contradistinction to the Jacobin emphasis on real universals, right? So in a way, the French Revolution reignited the old medieval debate on real universals and nominalism. But in a post-French revolutionary context, the debate now shifted to a much less abstract set of stakes having to do with questions of the existence of God to a much more explicit political context centered around the realization of the values of liberty, freedom, and equality, which have now been granted a real stake in political contestation through these various political upheavals. Tocqueville wrote, quote, realism is synonymous with socialism and despotism, with the absolutization of the whole with respect to the parts. For Tocqueville, who Nietzsche read closely, nominalism is synonymous with liberalism and realism is synonymous with socialism. It was Hegelian philosophy that paves the way for socialism, according to Tocqueville and to Nietzsche. Now, Hegel rejects and refutes what Lacerda calls anthropological nominalism. For Hegel, freedom is marked by the construction of the universal concept of man. To quote Hegel, the fact that today man as man is considered the holder of rights is to be considered as something great, so that the human being is something superior to his status. Now, as the source of law, universal principles are enforced, and thus a new epoch has begun in the world. The Hegelian and later socialist commitment to achieving the unmet demands of the French Revolution insisted, therefore, on the real dimension to political values and their realization in the world threatened to remove, if not fund fundamentally alter, the formal liberal commitments to these values. For liberals like Taine and Tocqueville, nominalism was a tempering move to realist impulses. These impulses posed a threat to the very status of the reality of class struggle if they were extended as a weapon of the working masses. In other words, if certain spheres of exploitation and domination, such as the persistence of slavery or wage labor, were to align with realist demands and universals, the status quo would meet its demise. Nominalism was a cover. It was a shelter from these demands providing liberalism with the means for defending the status quo and maintaining a semblance of order and legitimacy. If these demands or domains of unjust political life had to be supported by appeals to nominalist relativism, sheltered from the demands of the masses, this raises the question of the status of the human as such in relation to the universal. And this is a topic that Nietzsche dedicates much of his philosophy to. In creating perspectivism, Nietzsche aimed to radicalize liberal nominalism by forging a radical subjective nominalism that was meant to retain a social order based on rank, order, and hierarchy. To quote Nietzsche from Antichrist, whom among today's rabble do I hate the most? The socialist rabble, 
who undermine the worker's instinct, his pleasure, his feeling of contentment, contentment with his little state of being, who make him envious, who teach him revengefulness. Injustice never lies in equal rights. It lies in the claim to equal rights. It is the difference around who is eligible to claim rights that makes the divergence in nominalist versus realist proposals of justice. For Nietzsche, the issue at hand is preventing the, the plebeian slave class, preventing their eligibility to even claim rights in the first place. What perspectivism thus furthers is a political epistemology, a strategy for furthering the social and political conditions where exceptional and brilliant individuals can remain the primary locus of subjectivity. Perspectivism offers a version of the human subject that might exist beyond these abstract demands of rights and representation that undergird the socialist realist basis of the subject. As you may know, the genealogical method Nietzsche develops in Genealogy of All Morals and earlier places the events of the 19th century, especially the crisis of the Paris Commune, at the center of a vortex of history that stretches back to the egalitarian realism of the Jewish and Socratic ideas of the human being founded in Plato and in the Jewish priests who both sought to found the individual subject on the basis of their wider social relations, i.e. in consciousness. Later, Cartesian rationalism, like the Socratic theoretical human being, which Nietzsche despised, suppressed an essential truth, namely that we are not masters of the thoughts that arise in us. Our thoughts do not stem from our intelligence. They rather constitute modes of reaction in which are transmitted old physiological dispositions. For Nietzsche, the forces of nihilist resentment are engendered by the speculative, rationalist, and optimistic worldview espoused by Socratism and later Cartesianism. And it is perspectivism that offers the alternative to this orientation. Um, now, although Schopenhauer uh, did not share the same aristocratic political agenda as Nietzsche, Lacerdo shows that Schopenhauer's nominalism was the basis by which Nietzsche radicalized the idea of perspectivism. For Nietzsche is society of rank ordering, committed to furthering otium et bellum, or leisure time for those whose lives have turned out well, was the basis of his political praxis. Perspectivism is thus best read alongside Nietzsche's explicit political agenda to, quote, go back by a long and devastating path to ensure that the natural and unbridgeable differences that existed among human beings are once again fully acknowledged by the division of society into castes. Now, as Jeff Waite has argued, Nietzsche's perspectivism aims at a, at a radical annihilation, not merely of egoism, as many uh, commentators, psychological commentators have indicated, but more specifically, it aims to destroy and occlude one specific form of consciousness, and that is class consciousness that is proletarian. The political context in which Nietzsche develops this idea is one in which realist commitments to universal rights only lead to dogmatism. By asserting the inescapable inescapability of singular perspectives and injustice, this was a way to assert the inescapability of rank order. Uh, with my remaining time, I'd like to offer a few remarks on Marx and Nietzsche. Where does Marxism fall in the realist nominalist uh, context that I've tried to outline here? 
I want to suggest that what, what makes Nietzsche a perceived comrade to the Marxist left is in large part found in the way that he deals with this impasse and crisis of political epistemology. With this framework of political epistemology in mind, we can gain a better idea of why Marx and Nietzsche have often been thought together. Both Nietzsche and Marx saw wage slavery as a form of slavery. Wage labor was a form of slavery in both thinkers. Um, the free human being bore an impressive resemblance to a slave, Lucerto notes, for both Nietzsche and Marx. For Nietzsche, the realist camp preached the importance of universality, but the people for whom this universality appealed were only the weak. Um, the weak conceal themselves in the communal generality of the concept human being. For Marx, on the other hand, realist universalism is, quote, in continuity with Christian discourse. The concept of egalite that had emerged from the French Revolution ended up concealing or legitimizing the reality of exploitation and domination. And yet, this idea of equality was still something great. It expressed the unity of human essence for man's consciousness of his species and his attitude towards his species. We thus see that for Marx, as for Hegel, the realist appeal to universalism captures something essential and that is worth furthering. Yet, the realities of exploitation and oppression that most people undergo in capitalism occludes and hinders the possibility for universal, universalism to be realized for all. If perspectivism was Nietzsche's break from this deadlock, we could say that the concept of ideology was Marx's break from the realism, nominalism problematic. For Marx, ideology was a way to explain not only how the system of capitalist exploitation and oppression was legitimized at the subjective level and how the suppression was transfigured as, quote, the fantastic realization of the human essence. Ideology was also, as we know in Marx's famous notion of commodity fetishism, uh, that's one form of ideology, but Marx also, uh, as we know, referred to Christianity as an opium as an illusion of the masses, which concealed beneath it a real longing for a utopian form of tranquility and equality. Ideology for both Marx and Nietzsche had a direct referent in the, uh, in the way that religion treated suffering. And this was the expression, ultimately, of a real distress and of a real protest uh, against uh, exploitation. Ideology was therefore a solution for the concealment of suffering that went unacknowledged. Marx therefore criticizes the illusoriness of religious transcendence that 19th century working classes relied on, while, while Nietzsche, for his part, criticized the desire for transcendence to which this dream and illusion, however confused and unrealistic, gave expression. We thus have two different critiques of ideology. One aimed to blow apart the false flowers on the chains in Marx, the other sought to legitimize the chains of serfdom and rank order to legitimate the oppression perpetrated by the ruling class. Nietzsche aimed to do away with the very basis of ideological crutches so that violence and oppression no longer needed to seek legitimation. Marx understood that Christianity's promise of flowers and transcendence concealed a realist demand for a form of life that was denied to the proletariat which is why he will invent a theory of universality based on this exclusion of the proletariat. Indeed, Christianity was an opium for the masses, a consoling technique, and Christianity was not to be completely abandoned by either thinker. That's important. For Marx, there were conservative limits 
that Christianity's heavenly equality confirmed are risk-confirming about worldly inequality. Therefore, Christianity was forced to take on reactionary and conservative tendencies. And Nietzsche was by no means opposed to Christianity to court, by no means. He supported bourgeois and conservative forms of Christianity that reinforced rank order, and he supported, for example, the triumph of European Christianity in the Opium War in China. For Marx, Christianity was a socio-political institution that most often furthered reactionary agendas. Um, but with that said, emancipation from false consciousness does not necessitate a pathos of universal reason for Marx and for Nietzsche, even though the status of the real dimension of universality was only partially illuminated under bourgeois society, Marx does not, as Nietzsche does, advocate the total abandonment of universal or the complete nominalization of the realist dimension to values such as justice and equality, or to advocate this would only affirm counter-revolution. Um, how much time do I have, Harrison? One minute? Okay. Um, in short, uh, what I think has been very attractive, unfortunately, to left Nietzscheanism is a certain, and you see this uh, very well explicated in Malcolm Bull's anti-Nietzsche, is a certain proposal that um, the cathartic moment of revolution is off the table, right? Gramsci had the idea that revolution uh, possesses a certain uh, potential for a catharsis, i.e. revolution holds the potential for resetting resentments and antagonisms, right? That what Nietzscheanism does is it um, puts the cathartic possibility and swaps that in for a fundamental pessimism uh, and, and I would say a fundamental commitment to the notion that a minimal degree of inequality is absolutely necessary in any revolutionary situation. So a certain marker of left Nietzscheanism is um, certain um, solidarity with that proposal, with that proposal of pessimism. Um, I'll, end it, I'll end it with that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Daniel, and thank you so much to our three speakers. I think it's time to open up to Q&A, to questions that our uh, audience might have. And they could be questions related to the papers, questions also related to the book, questions about Lacerda, questions about Nietzsche. So we welcome those questions in the chat. I do have a couple questions uh, that were sent to us. So like to read the, the first one, and this is addressed to all of us. Uh, does Lacerdo consider in his book how German critical theorists like Adorno, Horkheimer, or Habermas read Nietzsche and how their readings compare to thinkers like Deleuze, Bataille, Vatimo, etc.? So if any of the speakers want to take a, a stab at that. Yeah, I mean, I can say briefly that uh, in the appendix, we, we have a wonderful elaboration, with, which Tiana mentioned, of what Lucerta calls the hermeneutics of innocence. Um, the 
However, Adorno is not a central uh, focus point there. Um, Adorno is mentioned very briefly. Habermas is mentioned maybe once. Um, the central focus there is Gianni Vattimo. Uh, Jacques Derrida's text uh, spurs on Nietzsche's style is probably um, the most rigorously analyzed as well as Foucault uh, uh, is also discussed. In my view, I don't know if, what you think, Ben or Tiana, it's that appendix which is um, such a nice invitation for further scholarship in the kind of, like, I would have liked to have seen more elaboration, and I think that it's almost uh, an invitation for people to take up uh, a more scholarship in that same vein. Um, so I would say not much is offered there, but more could be. So, if Ben and Tiana want to talk, uh, that's fine. I might want to just say something really quick. So, when Lacerdo does mention Adorno and Horkheimer's dialectic of enlightenment, he wants to focus on how they see Nietzsche as what they call a black sheep of the bourgeoisie. So, they're comparing Nietzsche to the Marquis de Sade in terms of the self-destruction of instrumentalist thinking overturning into authoritarianism, which is interesting because usually um, scholars don't really emphasize those moments in the Frankfurt School, especially the first generation of the Frankfurt School, who do acknowledge Nietzsche as an authoritarian thinker. So you definitely have an acknowledgement of that in um, um, Julietta Enlightenment morality and dialectic of enlightenment, as well as even the young Horkheimer's aphorisms uh, from the decline aphorisms. That's not to say that uh, Adorno and Horkheimer aren't guilty of what Lacerda would call the hermeneutics of innocence. And if you do want to see an extension of Lacerda's scholarship applied to the Frankfurt School readings of uh, Nietzsche, I strongly recommend the epilogue to Ishe Landis fascism in the masses, where Landa does a good job uh, pinpointing where the hermeneutics of innocence are in readers like Adorno and Horkheimer and Marcuse. So I just wanted to put that out there. I think another thing that, you know, could be said, and I think Lusurdo sort of mentions this in his book, that um, Adorno in particular was a, um, you know, fierce critic of Lukács' destruction of reason, and uh, that perhaps could be read as his entree into the hermeneutics of the innocence. I mean, obviously the context is quite different, but then again, Horkheimer and Adorno are also faced with, you know, a very sort of <laughs> uh, quotations from Nietzsche about the, uh, uh, what Lusurdo calls Malriusciti, so the, um, you know, those parts of the race who are the uh, weak, the, uh, you know, simply the ones who have, as it were, a hereditary issue, as it were, and those that have to be destroyed. And I think, you know, he only mentions this en passant because that's not sort of his principal target, given that he mostly, um, you know, a la Hegel tries to put Nietzsche in his own time, as it were, and to see Nietzsche responding to the theories of his own time and at the same time conversing with the um, uh, uh, authors uh, of the 19th century, as it were. And I think it's the biggest merit of the book, in fact. Uh, 
Um, move on to the next question. So this question is for Tiana. Uh, Tiana, would you like to elaborate more on the relationship between the aristocratic rebel and the liberalism book, A Counter History? Well, I think, uh, as I said, I mean, uh, uh, it's it's sort of quite simple. Uh, um, or let me start from the conclusion. Losurdo, if I'm not wrong, uh, uh, you know, closes the book on liberalism after um, extensive argument. And he says, only now are we in a position to argue something against the official hagiography, which is an insult to the victims. And one could almost say the same thing about uh, about Nietzsche. So the question he poses is the same. So how can a philosopher that is seen at the same time as destroyer and creator, which is what liberalism in a way is, on the one hand, professing the liberty, quality, uh, and so on. On the other hand, deeply entrenched uh, in the questions of colonialism, racism, just like Nietzsche's thoughts uh, with Lukács is entrenched within the development of the imperialist phase of capitalism, as it were. So the question that relates these two books is the same. So how can a theory which we all consider to be, uh, and it is also a part of the, um, um, how can I put it, the um, the ways we've been taught, you know, everyone has been taught philosophy in a certain way. We've been told that there are certain readings which are objective, you know, uh, impartial, uh, and a la Popper, you know, this is the official this is the official line. And then readings like Los Urdos uh, uh, are seen as political. Well, we still have to find out why is Los Urdo more political than these people who are trying to convince us that his reading is political, whereas their reading is objective. And this has been part and parcel of the entire project, as it were, after the Second World War. And I think it's very important to have this to have this in mind. So when we talk about Nietzsche, and that's the point that Losurdo explicitly makes, is to say that Nietzsche is philosopher totus politicus, that he can only be understood as a philosopher explicitly in dialogue with political theories of his own time. I mean, with history, with the political events uh, and everything that's happening. And as I said already, the context is obviously the French Revolution, the dual revolution, the first international, the second international American civil war, the uh, uh, fall of the Paris Commune and all of these things, which you can explicitly find in Losurda's book. And in the end, Nietzsche's um, um, adherence to certain um, uh, racial uh, 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 you know, theories which uh, precisely are expressed in his um, 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 aristocratic uh, uh, point of view, as it were. And this is also a question, why does Losurdo entitle the book, okay, maybe he didn't invent it, but why is he, why did he give uh, 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 the book, you know, the title Nietzsche il ribelle aristocratico, so the aristocratic rebel, I mean, uh, on the one hand, we could say, you know, there is an interview where uh, Lukács gets asked whether or not he thinks that Weber, who was his teacher at one time, blah, 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 uh, that Weber would have become uh, a Nazi, uh, you know. And Lukács says, I'm definitely convinced he wouldn't. Now, you could say the same thing about Nietzsche. Perhaps Nietzsche wouldn't have been a Nazi. He would have probably been with the uh, uh, Stefan Georg Kreis, you know, and the people who saw Nazism ultimately as too plebeian. I mean, this is all possible. And this is why I think um, uh, when, when, when thinking about, you know, uh, the uh, contro storia liberalismo and when thinking about the Nietzsche il ribelle aristocratico, so the same, you know, core is there. And that is the aristocratic Moment. So, for example, when he in the book uh, Losurdo um, compares, for example, Mill 
to Nietzsche and even sees in, you know, the champion of, 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 of liberal thought, as it were, he sees certain similarities and that is precisely their aristocratic uh, uh, point of view. Even though it's interesting that Lusurda, for example, does not discuss the subjection of women and the subjection of women, I mean, it is the only of all the books cited by male, that's the only one that's not cited. And it's quite interesting because the subjection of women opens uh, literally or quite I mean, similarly, but it opens with the words he's, uh, um, um, Mill says the 19th century holds, you know, it, it, is, it is the apotheosis of exactly the opposite of the 18th. The 18th century was the century of reason and it was against the prejudice. The 19th century is the century of the instinct. He literally uses the word of the instinct, of the prejudices. So we value in the 19th century what we held to be completely worthy of every despise in the 18th century. And he, you know, according to Mill, this would be the reason why women are still blah, blah, blah. One shouldn't be fooled, obviously. Mill did not have in view the universal suffrage. He had in view the, you know, extension of suffrage to his own, as it were, class or to, you know, uh, um, aristocrats. If, you if, if we want to use Nietzsche's title, I mean, not quite the aristocrats, but only to a certain landowning, possessing uh, bourgeoisie and so on and so forth. So, again, you can find differences and similarities, but this is the point of, of Lasurda's argument in both cases, or at least, you know, it would be one of my lines to follow, basically. Speaking of uh, reason versus prejudice, uh, I think this is appropriate for the next question. What is the importance of the Enlightenment to Lacerda's critique of Nietzsche? Copy and paste that. Uh, ben, did you want to get that? Or I can say a few things about Play. This is Harrison's question. Yeah. Harrison oh. kind of writing on the Enlightenment and yeah. discussing it. I, I think Harrison would do yeah. a great job taking that. Uh, when I wrote my Enlightenment pieces for Jacobin magazine, I was writing them in tandem with working with uh, Lacerdo's book, editing Lacerdo's book. So it's really the first hundred pages of the aristocratic rebel that hit you that Nietzsche's early enemy as a young Wagnerite is enlightenment, is the hubris of reason. And Lacerdo does a good job showing how Nietzsche transitions from this almost national liberal Germanic critique of enlightenment to what he calls a aristocratic enlightenment. Sometimes he calls it a pseudo-enlightenment. Because when Nietzsche breaks from Wagner explicitly and wants to reclaim some conception of enlightenment, he wants to limit enlightenment to make room for his own aristocratic project. So what does enlightenment become? It doesn't become an emphasis on equality. It doesn't become an emphasis on democracy. It becomes a skeptical tool to debunk the what he calls the illusions of egalitarian revolutions, the illusions of the French Revolution. And then later on, with his uh, proper, mature, aristocratic, radical phase, there is a new critique of the Enlightenment that Nietzsche initiates. And Nietzsche thinks that concepts like causality um, and Cartesian rationalism, they are afflicted with slave morality, because in order to understand the world, you have to sort of bring everything down to an intelligible level 
that the masses could in principle know. So even this concept of causality, cause and effect is making equal for Nietzsche. So you can find the political dimension of slave morality, even in these very abstract concepts like Descartes' cogito and efficient causality. And it's also in this mature aristocratic uh, radical phase that Nietzsche criticizes Spinoza. Uh, he had a weird kind of uh, affinity for Spinoza uh, in the so-called middle period, uh, I think from his reading of Kuno Fischer's book on the history of philosophy, and he's very enthusiastic to Franz Overbeck that he found his precursor. That changes in the aristocratic rebel or radical phase. He even writes this very, uh, I think, anti-Semitic anti poem about Spinoza that you can read on Ralph Dumaine's uh, autodidact project, uh, which he got from Yovel's book on Spinoza and other heretics. So in terms of Nietzsche's own relationship to the Enlightenment, I think it really anticipates in certain ways, especially in the middle period, the kind of watered down positivist enlightenment reason that we see with new atheism and that we see with people uh, like Steven Pinker who hate Nietzsche, but actually if they read Nietzsche more carefully, especially the middle Nietzsche, they would have uh, discovered a, a lot of affinities, including the critique of socialism as irrational, because it's not always socialism as the hubris of reason. In this middle period, um, Nietzsche takes up Tocqueville. And he takes up um, these liberal critiques of socialism as irrational, as romantic. So I think that kind of uh, emphasis um, that Lacerdo brings, that Nietzsche is always a critic of the Enlightenment. Sometimes he camouflages himself as an Enlightenment critic, but he's always a critic of the Enlightenment. The other thing about Lacerdo's relationship to the Enlightenment that should be mentioned quickly is that he criticizes Gadamer in his book on class struggle. He says that we shouldn't um, give up reason in favor of this rehabilitation of prejudice, that we really have to uh, defend reason in a, in a dialectical way, not in a positivistic way. And he also defends uh, what he calls a Jacobin Enlightenment. And you also get the sense in the liberalism book that there are certain premises of the Enlightenment um, that we need to go further and activate uh, that liberalism can't, but certain forms of radicalism can, and of course, Marxism can. So that's just what I want to say. If I can add one more thing, I mean, to uh, to do justice to Lasurdo, um, I mean, he even, you know, wrote this little book about Kant called Autocensura e Compromesso nel Pensiero Politico di Kant. So uh, uh, how do you translate? Self-censorship. Yeah, auto-censorship. Auto yeah. Auto-censorship and compromise in Kant's political thought where he, um, and it was much in the spirit of time in one of also one of his uh, uh, teachers um, and friends, uh, 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 Pasquale Salvucci wrote another book called L'Uomo di Kant, uh, Kant's men, as it were, and you know he he was well intellectually raised, if one can put it this way, precisely in the um, in the Enlightenment, uh, Enlightenment leftist Marxist, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 school, as it were, defending the idea of the progress of revolution, um, you know, uh, putting Kant together, so Kant's as it were, subjective identification with Robespierre, much in, in, in line with, for example, what André Tossel did in his book, in his book on Kant. So uh, the um, the thought of the Enlightenment, as it were, is no 
is not alien uh, to Domenico Losurdo's philosophical project in general. And you can find online even interviews where, you know, he gets asked about, you know, counterposing Kant and Nietzsche and, and so on and so forth. You know, and he says, well, obviously, when one thinks about their conceptions of man, um, Nietzsche, who, uh, as Deleuze somewhere puts it, you know, wants to end the judgment and Kant, who is the philosopher of judgment and so on and so forth. These are all, you know, I mean, if you don't have judgment, you can't have, by extension, political judgment. And hence Nietzsche can appear to be this, you know, a philosopher that swims in this air and is here and there. So in this sense, I mean, Losurdo's book is not a book for anyone and everyone or for everyone and no one. Okay, um, let's ask another question. Given Lacerdo's critique, what is still useful in Nietzsche? Other receptions remain as social facts with influence such as Foucault and earlier Ernst Bloch and Henry Lefebvre. Yeah, I think this is a, in some ways this is, we're talking about the Saracen as well, this is a difficult question, not difficult to answer really, I think in the sense that we, as we've started to do here, you have to kind of critically examine uh, Nietzsche's concepts, rethink Nietzsche from the position, as Tiana said, suggested of a sort of total politics where politics becomes the determinant thinking. And then trace that as that influences other thinkers, which is why I made that point about my own self-criticism is that, you, you know, you can be political, as Daniel was talking about left Nietzscheans, and just to be political does not immunize you from a kind of Nietzschean problem. It falls into exactly what Diana's saying about a kind of hyper-subjectivism. And I think that then is the question to, you know, it's not, almost like once we've dealt with Nietzsche, but, you know, we then have to deal with the people Nietzsche influence in this critical way and go back and kind of frankly and honestly, uh, you know, re-examine them. So to take Foucault, perhaps the most controversial example, just try to write something that's kind of sympathetic to the late Foucault's work that has been heavily criticised recently. But you do have to see how strongly Foucault identifies as a Nietzschean, how strongly he identifies with the thematics of the aestheticization of the self. Coming back to Daniel's point, you know, that's a heavily political concept. That's the point of Benjamin to be aesthetic is also to be political. So there becomes a great deal of kind of questions to ask how these things happened and then how they have become social facts. You know, why do we accept the Nietzscheanism? Of Foucault or of Ernst Bloch or of Henri Lefebvre or of you know Bataille, who I worked on, or literally hundreds of other kind of thinkers and intellectuals. And then before we get to, which is something both me and Harrison have an interest, we could get to popular culture. And then we've got uh, you know, everyone from the film director John Milius to you know, uh, you know, a whole kind of countercultural milieu, which I took as a young person as kind of radical and left, and now I kind of deeply see how it's influenced by Nietzsche. So I think we have to start kind of pulling the thread from Nietzsche and quite a lot potentially unravels in, in I think, interesting ways and important ways. But, you know, it's also yeah, quite a shock <laughs> to come back to Daniel's point. You know, it's quite a shock to kind of do this and start thinking about this whole kind of to limit it 20th century culture. If I could add one thing, um, you know, when you take um, I think there has I mean, Losurdo underlines this and even Italian, you know, liberal, liberal thinkers such as, for example, Norberto Bobbio, one of the greatest uh, Italian scholars uh, uh, of the 20th century, certainly. Um, you know, when you think about uh, uh, when we think about Nietzsche and the probably after Nietzsche, there hasn't been a single 
movement of the right that hasn't taken Nietzsche to be, in a way, you know, uh, related, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, or Nietzsche as their prophet or Nietzsche as, you know, their whatever. Um, you know, people like Karl Jaspers, for example, in his book on Nietzsche, he claimed, you know, Nietzsche is a philosopher who cannot have followers because he escapes this idea. There are no pupils of Nietzsche. There are no followers of Nietzsche. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, Nietzsche himself actually uh, uh, says, you know, ich bin ein Gesetz nur für die, für die meinen. Ich bin kein Gesetz für alle. I'm a law only for mine own. I'm not a law for all. Now, the question that we have to pose in relation to this is not, you know, uh, uh, whether or not the right interpretations are misinterpretations, but why is it that these people find Nietzsche to be their own, as it were? So, you know, we are to the right, or we are off the right, to the extent that our readers are off the right. And I think this is somehow the way we should, you know, read and observe Nietzsche, because the real question is not whether or not these are misinterpretations, but why is it that these people always somehow end up clinging with Nietzsche, you know, what is it that they find in him? And I think the question is, you know, uh, uh, after Lasurda's book, if it hasn't been clear before, rather simple. I mean, you could pose the same question about Heidegger and say, you know, what, what do we do with Heidegger? Well, the only thing is to have readings which exactly like Lasurda put things into their own context and show how certain expressions, be it Nietzsche, Nietzsche's expressions or Heidegger's, you know, key concepts actually evolve or develop from the political struggle or from the political thinking of their own time. And I think, you know, uh, philosophy in this sense has a lot more to do. For example, if you think, if you take in Germany, the legal scholarship, the med medical history and so on and so forth, we have fantastic um uh, things written about medicine and legal scholarship during the Nazi period. But the silence, as one German philosopher said, the silence of philosophers on all these issues is really remarkable. And I think that's that's quite fascinating. I think philosophy has a lot more to say and should say. Yeah, I mean, to mention your point about, you know, your kind of thought experiment about what Nietzsche would have done under Nazism. I mean, we've got the case of Ernst Jünger as well, I think would be a kind of yeah, very close parallel slash identification. Um, you know, not saying that would have been the result, but it's it's a you know it's a kind of lived thought experiment in terms of Jung's own um, aristocratic aestheticized uh, radicalism. I would say one thing on on Nietzsche's strengths, or like what what is left of Nietzsche worth preserving or worth furthering. He Losurdo says very straight out um, towards the end of the text that. It is in the um, historical genealogical method that Nietzsche develops, which uh, needs to be treated well, needs to be treated carefully. Um, he obviously mentions problems with the Foucauldian uh, incorporation of that, but the fact that Nietzsche um, can now be read as a hyper-political thinker capable of seeing politics where it had never before been seen offers a certain um, uh, warning to the left, but also a certain necessity to follow uh, the paths that Nietzsche opens. So I would say it remains there as a historical genealogical method, and uh, uh, it, which is not just reducible to politics, I would say, right? It's, it's, um, 
still, in my opinion, um, also the work of examining resentment, examining eternal return, examining perspectivism, which Lucerto does in some cases very, very well. Not as much on will to power, but he unearths these concepts in ways which are um, far more elaborate than Nietzschean philosophers are willing to accept. And I think that um, there's a lot of work that still needs to actually be done in this way. Um, and when you reach the end of that, I think that you're sort of forced to have an agreement with, with Domenico at the end of the day. It's very hard to disagree with the argument. And I think that you also have a kind of disavowal mechanism going on amongst a lot of liberal academic Nietzscheans who can kind of conveniently choose not to read this text, um, which is unfortunate. Um, I mean, I wonder how we can encourage more Nietzscheans uh, in the analytic camp, in the pragmatist camp, and so on, to engage with this text. Um, I wonder what you all think of that. I, I'm just curious. Something I've thought about a lot. I think part of the difficulty as well is that what I've noticed in responses to discussions around the Lucido book is people are also willing to just sort of throw Nietzsche away and say, right. well, okay, you know, oh, he was terrible or, he, you know, because it's, un, you know, it's undeniable, although they're not quoted as often as one might expect. You know, you read any book of Nietzsche's pretty much and there's some, you know, a decent human being pretty much um, right. discussed. But, you know, people are quite happy to sort of say, well, you know, we don't need any of that Nietzsche stuff. We just need, you know, difference or we just need some kind of, you know, like you were talking about, which I think was important, perspectivism. Or, you know, there's a tendency to kind of adopt the concept still that yeah. are Nietzschean while denying any actual connection to Nietzsche. So I think that comes back to Diana's point about historicization, your point about perspectivism. Mm. And I think that's why it's so difficult to encourage people to do it. Because it is, uh, you know, I know you're interested in psychoanalysis, it is like striking at yourself. It is a kind of striking at your own attachment, your own enjoyment of a, a figure. And Nietzsche plays on this all the time. You know, Nietzsche plays on your attraction to him as one to danger. You know, he's dangerous, he's dynamite. You know, he explicitly plays on that. So I think there is a kind of difficulty in asking people to treat this as, a, you know, an historical kind of thing, because part yeah. of the reading, reason they're reading it is, <laughs> you know, it has a dangerous edge and almost there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think it is quite, you know, it's an interesting social process, right. uh, also political, cultural process. Absolutely. Go ahead, Tiana. No, I just wanted to say it's also, I mean, which is why Lothurdo's book, I mean, you know, it's about taking positions. Once you, you know, read the book, uh, there are other books as well. Uh, it's about taking a political position. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes very different, uh, but that is difficult because it goes not just, you know, in some internal psychoanalytical sense, what Benjamin was saying, you know, against yourself. It is directly going against your interests. And this is exactly what Nietzsche teaches you not to do. You know, exactly what his message is. And I think that's why accepting this book is, is, is you know, um, or accepting that Nietzsche is this kind of a philosopher is not just, you know, your own identification with something that is evil, but it's also about uh, taking a political stance and political position. And that's, I, I fear, 
you know, the biggest parts of the problem, not just intellectually, but in everyday life, you know, in, in at the level of the everyday praxis. I would say one more thing. I love one thing I like about Los Cerdo in the liberalism book and in this book and in his book on class struggle is he helps us re periodize the long 19th century in ways which as a Marxist, you look at certain debates um, of utopian socialism versus communism, for example, in the 19th century. Um, you look at them very differently when you take the Lucerto long durée uh, approach, because you see um, the kind of contours of the schisms and the battles from a broader perspective. And you, when you do that, you can actually then think about Nietzsche uh, in the context of 21st socialism and the renaissance of 21st socialism, albeit it's maybe not as intense as it was in the 19th century, obviously. But we sort of have... Uh, a very interesting interlocution between Nietzscheanism and its irrational vitalism and a kind of liberal academic uh, philosophy which is silent precisely on those questions. So to me, the Lucerto piece is not so much the far-right incorporation of Nietzscheanism, it's the academic liberal philosophical establishment quietude position vis-a-vis Nietzsche, which is even more in line with the dynamics of of Nietzsche's own time. Right. So that to me is a certain gift, um, a gift for Marxists to understand a different theory of sectarianism. Ultimately, I would say, um, I don't know, it's something about that that makes you go a little bit softer on the utopian socialists uh, than, than we're trained to do as Marxists. I think, uh, you know, Lukács is quite right in the introduction to the destruction of reason when he says every thinker is responsible in front of history for the objective content of his philosophy. And I think that is a, you know, a motto or a credo that we all should accept. Of course, this presupposes that you take certain position and that you question the world in which you live in ways different to what the uh, liberal mainstream has, you know, uh, taught us to do and to see the world simply... uh, um, as a place in which you have a certain responsibility as both a thinker, a philosopher, neighbor, you know, partner, and, and you know, at the level of everyday praxis and at the level of struggle, you know, and this is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have another question. <laughs> Does Lacerdo address Nietzsche's themes of decline and nihilism? I, I think the uh, the short answer to that is yes. But if any of you want to comment. I think people should read the book, buy the book, read the book. And, you know, uh, I think that's the uh, go through through the argument yourself. Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing that might be helpful in the future is the translation of the earlier shorter political biography that Lucerto um, wrote of Nietzsche. And that's more of the menu before the meal, Mm. so to speak. But I think uh, it would be good to give people a taste because maybe uh, it's it's hard to sit down and just read a thousand thousand pages. But it's Uh, very readable. It's very readable. It is. Absolutely. It's it's readable. It's riveting. It's transformative. I, I implore people to read it. Um, and I don't think that the 100 pages of or the 80 pages of the of the smaller book is a substitute, but it might help the ball. 
<laughs> might help us so get the ball rolling. One quick thing on nihilism. Um, one nice thing is that, you know, when you read a book like Nietzsche and Philosophy by Jill Deleuze, um, the distinction between passive and active nihilism is almost granted a kind of trans-historical status. And what's nice is that Jacobin nihilism is different than kind of liberal status nihilism. And therefore, uh, it's an example of how Lostrudo can contextualize that very important distinction, right? Uh, so that when you read a book like The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama, which is a Nietzschean Hegelian synthesis, um, and he talks all about nihilism, you sort of get um, a fabulous contextualization in the long 19th century to understand like how these distinctions were derived in real time, right? Um, so part of the hermeneutics of innocence is to um, take Nietzsche at his word that the genealogical project was truly a trans-historical project. And to an extent it was, but in many ways it was not, right? So that that's one thing on nihilism that I liked. So here's the question. Does Lacerdo extend the concept of totis politicus also to the young Nietzsche, professor of philology, with a strong concern about education? Does Lacerdo agree with Lukash? Thank you. Great debate. Thank you. Can I answer this question? Yes, you may. Yes, he does. He extends the, uh, uh, so he sees the entirety, as it were, of Nietzsche's philosophical project as a political project. So in this sense, he definitely sees young Nietzsche involved in the same political debates and the arguments and the quotations and everything that he provides uh, uh, in the book actually speak for themselves um, uh, from the birth of tragedy onwards. And another thing, does he agree with Lukács? Well, the answer is sort of yes and no. So uh, there is a lot of Lukács, obviously, in Losurdo's book, and not just Lukács of the destruction of reason, but Lukács uh, and his essays on fascism. Uh, also from 1930. So these two principal works, as it were, uh, where he does not agree or where he thinks Lukács should be complimented, I would rather say, you know, that he thinks that Lukács should be complimented. On the one hand, um, as I mentioned, he sees Lukács as being too uh, German in his interpretation and failing to understand the spirit of the time, as it were, both the American, the French, and the British uh, 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 political and intellectual climate of the time, which is what he's doing, and uh, Nietzsche's direct uh, uh, replies, as it were, to the American civil war. And that is precisely what he's trying to do. So like in the uh, Liberalismo Contro Storia, he's trying to um, sort of um, extend the story to the history of colonialism as well in this sense, and to show that Nietzsche is not, you know, immune from these debates either. Mm -hmm. And br briefly, the most important contribution of Lucerto apropos the early Nietzsche is a serious consideration of a lecture uh, on Socrates and tragedy that comes up before Genealogy of All Morals, which um, really blatantly reveals his um, anti-Semitism and the way that that links directly, I mean, and I mean directly, to anti-socialism, uh, which commentators didn't have that before this, really. It wasn't really in the conversation. Very significant. So one more question, and then I think we'll wrap up. 
So this person was wondering about Lacerdo's book's influence after its release in 2002. Has it had any presence in Nietzsche's studies, especially in Anglo-American academic texts? I'm not a good person to comment because I am not a officially employed as a philosopher, uh, nor I'm Anglo, I guess. Uh, but I have, you know, I mean, part of the point of the translation and this, which we're you know, monolingualism and the debate is that I think um, it doesn't seem to have had much impact. There has, as Harrison's mentioned, and he can name more names than I can, been lots of, sort of parallel work that explore similar themes. Uh, Dombrowski, Dombrowski, uh, Timothy Brennan's done some work. So I think there is a kind of emergent consensus, alternate consensus, um, starting to emerge in Anglo-American studies of Nietzsche, but it still seems to me, relating to the point Gianna made about politics, marginal, you know, it's uh, it's marginal to that politics. Um, which often claims to be radical, not just liberal, but it, it's it's still marginal, I think, to the dominant interpretations. But I've seen, I know more of the kind of French, Anglo-French theory type receptions, and it seems to have been sort of non-existent there. And I'm not confident that it will have existence there because it's it's such a deep challenge to that kind of way of looking at things. Yeah. So I think that's the stakes of what we're trying to do in some senses: mm. open the reception. Yeah. Yeah, it would be it would be fabulous if this could penetrate French Nietzscheanism. That's a very uh, well concealed uh, vessel of thought, but you never know. Um, and there's reasons people try to um, kind of easily dismiss the text. I think Harrison and I noticed uh, Petr Sloterdijk uh, uh, dismisses it as a kind of Trotskyist uh, text because Trotsky's first publication was a, a screed against Nietzsche, actually. Um, and in some ways, there is a kind of similarity there um but um yeah I, you know i think that the, the, the this will be uh making a big splash in the anglo that's my hope um although tiana and harrison i don't know if you are as optimistic as i am there but as i was saying i think there's a relationship between the kind of uh, interest in socialism and this perspective on nietzsche which uh, will itself hopefully influence a new generation of scholars. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic, but uh, emphasis on uh, Spinoza and caution for me. Um, and yeah, Tiana, did you want to say anything about this? No, I'm just, um, I, I share your cautious optimism mm -hmm. and would tend to sort of, you know, um, agree more with Lukács, that is the fundamental thesis of his book, um, The Destruction of Reason, as the utter subjectification, as it were, of uh, a historical and every other experience, and the complete um, dismissal and the impossibility to understand the totality, the, the objectivity of historical processes. And when we think about today and you know, various, in all parts of the world, I think we're all sort of faced with um, um, similar, you know, movements, ideas, the the new right, the alt-right, the conspiracy theories and all these things, which obviously, you know, with Lukács, one should not think 
you know, as an individual problem, but precisely as the problem which is deeply um, related to the impossibility of representing the system, as it were, objectively, and hence people are, you know, pushed to the complete subjectivization, which is what then leads to these various things, which then we should see as as, as a consequence uh, rather than a cause in and of itself of, of either societal and political problems that we are faced with. Great. So I just want to emphasize to the audience, this is the book. It came out, I think, officially today. So you can get it through Amazon. And I exhort you, I implore you to get and Haymarket's website. And I urge you to get a copy of this book. It will definitely be a, a milestone read in your intellectual life. Thank you so much. And thank you to our speakers. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.